Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. Thank you for being here from 2023 ITC. I am Kat Moon, and I am honored to be joined on the stage with a couple of folks who I'm certain are familiar to all of you. So I'm just going to kick us off. Kat Moon, I teach at Vanderbilt. I am a lawyer, and this is my second ITC. I also co-host the Talk Justice podcast, and this will end up being broadcast as an episode of Talk Justice. So next to me is Bob Glaves. He is with the Chicago Bar Foundation. And next to him is Nalani Fujimori Kaina. And she is the executive director of, I want to make sure I say it correctly, Legal Aid Society of Hawaii. And both Bob and Nalani have been doing this work for two plus decades. And so um, I'm thrilled that they are here to reflect and also think about the future. So we're going to start off by reflecting. Question I would pose to both of you is, you've experienced now day three, three days of 2023 Innovations and Technology Conference. What is a big takeaway for you from our time together, the sessions you participated in, attended. Nalani, we will start with you. I thought you were starting with Bob. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. You know, the opening plenary was really captivating to me. I think one of the things that he said was this idea of complexity. I mean, you know, making things complicated and making it complex, right? This notion of how we do our work. And I think it, as I started to think about it throughout the conference, one of the things that I keep seeing, though, is how we make things so complicated. We make things complicated, especially in the tech space. We want to always make things better for what we think. I think we start to customize solutions based on specific problems rather than looking at what the more general assumptions are in the community around needing to provide services to our population. And I think I keep pondering that notion, right, of complexity and why we keep making things so complex. And we've got to find ways to simplify the work that we do. And I think as I was looking at a lot of our presentations this week, we keep going to this complexity level and we've got to, I I just keep pondering that. How do we find a way to make things simple again? And how do we find ways to look at our justice system and make it more accessible to the communities we serve? And I think that's going to be going back to our humans and going back to the clients that we serve and really talking to them rather than going so far along the tech route. So I don't know, maybe that's not the right answer for a tech podcast, but that's just kind of one of the things that I keep I keep thinking. And that's because I'm simple. I'm simple-minded in how I want to approach this work as an executive director that doesn't have resources available to me. I've got to find ways to make it simple. I've got to find ways to get staff that we can bring onto our programs that can assist in these things, and we don't have unlimited resources. So keep thinking that we've got to find some way to make the work that we do a lot more simple so that we can get to the larger population that needs services. 
My turn, huh? So on a personal level, I've been very happy to see the sun the last few days here in Phoenix. Uh, we haven't seen that a lot lately in Chicago, so uh, that's been very pleasant. But on the conference, I had sort of a three-part takeaway, all related, that also grew starting in the uh, opening plenary with Everett Harper. I thought it was just great. Um, but when he talked about inclusive design, which I kind of thought of as I went through the rest of the conference here, inclusive design and delivery, both, about thinking of all the different humans in it, starting with the clients, looking at how the clients are experiencing something, but also looking at how the other players in the system. So for a court-based program, you've got the lawyers, you've got the clerks of the court, you've got the judges, you know, thinking about that experience from everybody from the get-go and thinking about your data right then before you get started and how you're going to build in your data and evaluation. Um, that was sort of a starting point. And then also just how integrating tech into the rest of the delivery system, but also integrating tech among each other. It was really great to see how many um, APIs, I think they call them. I'm not the tech guy on the panel here. Uh, the, how many of the tools that are out there are now working together and talking to each other? And to Nalani's point about simplifying things, when we use them, we don't have to learn seven different systems now. We can kind of have one entry point and uh, clients can have one entry point. And so that's really great. But the third one that relates to all that um, is our regulatory, uh, our way of regulating legal services and the delivery of legal services. Uh, I already was fairly aware that we need to modernize that, but this really just brings it home. We are regulating for a whole different era than what we're living in right now. And uh, I think the Arizona folks who did a panel here gave a model of how we can look at that differently that I think it would behoove all of us to think about. So I'm happy to talk about any of those things more, but those were my big takeaways. So you all have shared a lot of rich stuff. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull a few threads. First, I wanna harken back to my first ITC, which was in Portland. And I was there for the opening plenary when Jim Sandman spoke. And there's a piece in his talk that I carry with me daily and Nalani hit that nail on the head and it is this it is about time we we lawyers the legal profession brought our intellectual resources to bear on eliminating some of those intricacies and this is JFK speaking in 1964 about how lawyers overcomplicate and overcomplexify everything we touch and this really is part of my life mission in the work I do teaching and trying to prepare lawyers coming up for the world we live in. And this touches on a point you made, Bob. So I often point out that we are working in and existing in systems of justice, systems of legal education, systems of legal services delivery, that were designed in and for the second industrial revolution. That is a time that ended one, more than 100 years ago. We are now in the fourth industrial revolution, and it is essentially opposite world to the second industrial revolution. And so we keep trying, we, what we do is, it seems, we take the tools that used to work 100 years ago 
And we keep trying to use them as we simultaneously are making things more complex. So I think this is one of our biggest and greatest challenges, and it really lies at the heart of points you both made, Melanie and Bob, at the heart of how we leverage technology to serve the 92% of low-income Americans who get no legal help, and the millions more who aren't counted in that number, by the way, and how we keep people, the humans, the people who are having the problems at the center of how we serve, and how we try to decomplexify things. So how might we do that, friends? <laughs> I think we have to get over the idea that things have to be perfect. I think we have such this notion that everything we do has to be perfect. And if we keep holding ourselves to that standard, we're never going to get anywhere. And I think that's one of the things that I, I keep seeing in this field sometimes is this notion that, well, the translation wasn't perfect. This wasn't perfect, right? Or, you know, this person didn't have the right, um, the right information. And sometimes we have to accept that we're not going to be able to do it for everyone and find other ways to find solutions. And that's what makes me nervous, I think, with some of the work that we start to do is that it's not right. It's not perfect. Our clients, you know, deserve more. And yeah, they do deserve more, but you also have to go back to Kat's number. 92% of people aren't getting anything, right? And so how do we meet those needs? And we just can't let, you know, perfect be the enemy of, of, of our world and kind of forgive ourselves when we make those mistakes. And I think that's the other thing we've seen, right? When we point out the mistakes, things are corrected quickly. We try to correct them as quickly as we can, um, but we also have to not let that stop us from taking the steps and making progress forward. So I think that's one of the things that I, I think constantly struggle with was this notion of we have to be perfect. And, you know, we never are. I mean, think about all of the representation that we do for clients in our communities. We're making strategic choices when we're representing people. And so it's the same thing with technology. We're making, we're having to make strategic decisions about the technologies we use, how we, how we do that, and we have to do the best that we can with the information that we have available at that time. Agree with all that. Um, I also, I came to this work from private practice where I was in commercial and tort litigation, and our system actually works pretty well in that area because everybody's represented. Those are actually complicated cases for the most part. They're not all complicated, but they tend to be more complicated. And the rules of procedure that we have work reasonably well for that. Uh, the problem is those are the same rules that govern practically everything else we do uh, and that don't need to be that complicated to Nalani's point and, uh, and Kat's point. But we're using the same kind of rules and it's sort of that one size fits all thinking that just too much, too often permeates our system. So I think uh, a good way to think about it is, is it complicated because it really is complicated or because we made it complicated? And uh it's too often the latter um, that, you know, just because that is the way it was. And I hadn't really thought about in terms of industrial revolutions, Kat. Uh, that's an interesting way to think about it. But if we're a whole industrial revolution behind here, you know, we might, we might have some room here. Um, so, um, Yeah, we're, we're way behind. Well, I like to say my great, great, great uncle, Elijah Heiss, was a lawyer, the first lawyer in my family. I'm a first, fifth generation lawyer. And um, I'm confident he could walk into a courtroom almost anywhere and feel very at home. There might be some technology surrounding things, but the pomp and circumstance and how we do things is 
still um, would be very familiar to him, I believe. So, Nalani, I want to attribute to you this. We can't let perfect be the enemy of justice. Okay? So we are perfectionists. And look, we have ethical obligations that demand that we deliver a very high level of, of service to clients. And how does that reckon with the fact that so few people actually get our help, I think, is one of our biggest and greatest challenges. So I'm going to pull back again to another point from Jim's talk in Portland. Again, it made a big impression on me because it was my first ITC. And it also, I think, connects into a couple of themes I took away from my the, the sessions I was able to participate in here. And one is making our work human-centered, right? Putting the people who we are problem-solving for and with at the center of our work. So human-centered design and all that that encompasses. And I think that goes, Bob, to your point about inclusive design. Um, it absolutely goes to decomplexifying things and how that can work, what that looks like. Another big thread for me was the concept of what I call radical collaboration. And this was one of the five things that Jim told us we really needed to be focused on going forward to solve the access to justice challenge. And I saw this in the data presentations and panels that I went to, right? This notion that lawyers can't be the only ones at the table. We can't be the only folks in the room to solve these big challenges we have. And we need a whole host of other professionals and experts who we can collaborate with meaningfully to solve these really big problems that frankly, I think sometimes feel insurmountable. And technology, leveraging technology and leveraging data, um, which are such incredibly rich resources, demands this of us even more. Because I will tell you what I believe. I've been practicing law for 25 years. I've been teaching at Vanderbilt for seven years. And I teach all the, the stuff on the periphery that um, I teach technology. I teach how to work with clients. I teach the stuff that's not the doctrine. And I believe we're reaching the point that we can't keep asking lawyers to do more stuff and know more stuff. Lawyers don't need to code. If you're a lawyer and you want to code, that's fabulous. And lawyers don't need to be data scientists. If you want to get into data as a lawyer, that's fabulous. But we don't, not everyone needs to. What we need to do is collaborate with experts in the fields who can bring the expertise we need to solve these problems. And so it's radical collaboration that I think is, is the solution. So how do we get there? How do we get to working with other folks? And both of you have been doing this for a couple of decades now. And I'm curious what you see on the horizon. How are we moving towards getting the right people around the table? Well, I think it's just happening, which is good, you know, more and more. And I think this conference reflected that this time um, to see all the different types of folks who are here, different types of professionals. Um, but, you know, one thing that uh, 
I think we'd all do well with is not calling everybody else non-lawyers, those of us who are lawyers, um, and calling them by who they are um, and what they do. Because uh, there's lots of opportunity here. There's no question about it. And we were talking last night when we were talking about this panel a little bit that if you look at big law these days, big law firms, they've got, it used to be lawyers manage the firms on their own, and they started to realize that wasn't great, probably for a lot of the reasons Kat's saying, you know, that like you're trying to wear too many hats, you're trying to be a lawyer, and you're trying to be all these other things. So they now, your big law firms now have CFOs, CMOs, uh, CIOs, COOs, you know, all these different business professionals around there who they are paying uh, increasingly good money to do that. Uh, we may even have some who are here. And they are businesses. They are not going to pay people who are not earners if they don't see a good reason to do it. And they're all doing it. And they're competing for talent in that space now. And it just shows you that, you know, when there's every incentive to take as much money in and keep it, they're spending money on this. And we can think about our system in the same way. And we don't tend to invest in legal aid and nonprofits and courts in the same way in these in these kind of positions. And I think we we would all do well to, to, to do that and respect them for those roles. And I 100% agree with you, Kat. It is not helping lawyers to not have that kind of help. It puts more stress on all of our legal aid lawyers and the management of the places if they don't have that kind of support. And it sets us back in the broader goals of really reimagining the system. I think the challenge, though, for, for programs like ours, which are smaller, right, is the resource resources, right? Our, our staff is underpaid. How do you, you know, we're trying to raise salaries, yet we need these other positions. So how can we move it beyond, you know, just one organization? And I think that's where there's opportunity, especially with the legal services network, is finding ways that we can share data, understand data, bring data to the table. How are other programs using data to solve the technology problem that they're, that they're coming up against? I, so I think there's collaboration pieces that we're going to have to start exploring more and bringing those conversations and bringing people to the table. And it was great talking with Kat because, you know, trying to find ways to connect with the law schools, other data people, finding how to do that. I don't think that we're having those conversations um, at the legal services level for directors and for those to be like, how do we find out how we can work with the data people? How can we find out how to work with evaluation people? How can we find the spaces and maybe there could be creation of spaces where we can bring people together to start thinking about how do you bring all those sectors so that we don't necessarily have to leverage it within our own organizations and especially for, and I always say this, I'm a smaller program. We're only $8 million. I mean, that might sound like a lot and I know I'm not quite you know, the smallest program, but there's no way that a really small program is going to be able to afford a data scientist on their staff. So I think we have to find ways, and I think LSC could help to bring those groups together to have that real conversation about how do we collaborate better? How can we leverage that for programs um, across the country? Absolutely. I'll, I'll pull another thread. So I think it needs to be creative, radical collaboration, and to once again refer to one of the five charges that Jim gave in Portland. The first charge he gave was, we need a network. We need a network that connects. And I, I kind of take it away as, as two things, a network that connects everyone out there. And he referenced a global network, but I would be happy to start with the U.S., a network that connects all the people who are running these amazing experiences. So like the Arizona 
panel. They're describing what's essentially an experiment, actually more than one experiment that's happening here in Arizona to expand who can deliver legal services and therefore expand who gets legal help. This is happening around the country in small and larger ways. And so how can we connect the people who are running the experiment so that we all can learn from this, right? And it also gives people who are doing the things a place to plug in and share and contribute to the hive mind. It becomes a lot less scary when you can launch something that you know someone else, somewhere else, is doing or has done and had some measurable success. It makes the leap for you a lot less stressful, hopefully less expensive. And another point, Nalani, that I would like to pull out from your observation is this idea of radically collaborating with law schools, definitely. I implore all of you to get to know folks, if you don't already, in your local law schools. Um, There's someone like me pretty much everywhere who's interested in innovation and leveraging technology, and I feel confident would love to partner with you. But that could be part of the network as well, right? I think another big opportunity, and this expands into law schools and most certainly into the corporate law world, Bob, that you were referring to. There are folks doing some really amazing things with technology and data in corporate law. And they have resources that actually could be deployed to help everyone in this room also do amazing things. And I urge everyone to consider how we can think of pro bono in a different way and leverage these resources that aren't necessarily legal services delivery Um, but data resources, technology resources that really the legal profession is a spectrum, right? And we can look at it with public interest and legal aid on one side and corporate law on the other, but there are a lot of elements to the work that can be translated from one side of the spectrum to another. And so I think we're at so many rich opportunities for the radical collaboration and to create this network and I will refer again to a panel I got to see about data and leveraging data with Holly and a number of other folks. Shelly was on the panel, um, and one of their calls to action was, let's get everybody around who's interested in data, all the lawyers and other folks who are interested in leveraging data, let's create a community of practice. And I think that serves as a model, not just for the data-minded, but you know, pick a theme, pick a subtopic, pick an area of, of experimentation, and you can create a community of practice around it and learn from what others are doing and share back um, what you're doing and share resources. So I think there are incredible opportunities um, to tap into the radical collaboration and the networking. But this does go back to to resourcing. I think that that is a substantial issue and the lack of resources that put pressure on individual people to wear too many hats. Curious if either or both of you see a role for how we might design deployment so that it does 
make things easier for the people doing the work. We put clients at the center a lot of our work. How can we also put the people, those of us doing the work, at the center of how we're problem solving? So it's making things easier for us as well. The needs of all the stakeholders in a perfect world. Any thoughts on that one? I mean, you have to include them in the conversations, right? I mean, I think it's, it's as simple as that. But, you know, we, we're working on re-looking at our intake system right now. And we actually brought together some of our frontline staff with some of the managing attorneys. And the conversations were fascinating because they had never really talked to each other before. Because so much of your process is the intake staff takes it, they route the docket through legal server or, or whatever the system is, but they never see what happens on the other side or the decisions that are being made at the management team level. And then the managers don't necessarily see what's happening at the front line. And I think even though you try to incorporate that into the training and make sure that your managing attorneys or your staff attorneys at least sit with the intake process at some point, they were never talking to each other. And I think when you talk about creating systems, we have to be better at making sure that the people are talking to each other that are not necessarily the ones that normally talk to each other to figure out where the issues are and where the challenges are. And so I think that's part of it, right? And it's really trying to have people sit in other people's shoes within your program. And I don't know how many programs do that often enough because again, unfortunately, everyone's wearing so many hats, right? Yeah. So how do you find ways and how do you find time so that people can maybe empathize a little bit more with the folks along the line that are making sure that the information is needed for that process. And then how, how then can you use technology to maybe optimize it? Yeah, and I think we have to do it. There was a column in the Washington Post yesterday with just a jarring title. It says, want to be happy? Don't be a lawyer. And, uh, and it, it goes on to, you know, look at happiness and across different occupations, and we're rock bottom, guys, uh, as lawyers, the lawyers in the room, um, which is uh, jarring. You know, that's a bad thing. You know, and there's a lot of reasons for that. People not feeling meaning in the work is a big one, but a lot of it is the stress that's on folks. And wearing too many hats, I think at all levels of the profession is a problem, but it's a particular one in the people we have in, um, in legal aid and on the front lines because they are the most under-resourced in this other stuff. And I think we, being creative, uh, the concept of business planning to really think about how you build this into programs in a more strategic way um, when, um, you know, and funders have to be part of this because funders have to support this too, that, you know, you might have a couple less lawyers to have these other people on your staff, you know, uh, to make everything else sustainable though. And, and, uh, and you know, those are, big conversations and they're not easy, but we need to, we can't just leave it like on legal aid to figure it out on their own. Uh, those of us who are funders or in the bar and um, in the support world, law schools, everybody else pro bono have to be in this together to try to help figure it out because it's, uh, you know, again, that, that, that column <laughs> headline is just, it's disturbing, you know, and I think um, it's something we should all think about. On that exact note, I'll share an observation. So I referred to the spectrum of, of legal profession and legal practice. And as different as we feel work on one end may be from another, there are so many points of opportunity for learning from each other. And, and a prime example is this. In-house legal departments these days are not looking to add lawyers to their staff. Their pile of work is growing dramatically and rapidly, and they're being told do more with less, just like everybody else in this room. 
And what they're doing is they're leveraging legal operations. They're leveraging business principles. And they're hiring different kinds of professionals instead of lawyers because they're leveraging other kinds of expertise and problem solving combined with technology to scale the service they can provide. And so it looks very different, again, from the one-to-one service model that grew out of the second industrial revolution in which we continue to base decisions on. So if y'all aren't familiar with the concept of legal operations and and what that entails and how you can leverage that really to scale delivery, I'm happy to have a conversation with anyone about exploring opportunities in that area because it goes directly to this really significant challenge, do more with less. And throwing more lawyers at, at the problem isn't necessarily the solution. Um, and who knows, we might not have enough. Well, we already don't have enough lawyers, but if, if everybody who's thinking about law school is reading the Washington Post, <laughs> I'm not going to go to law school. Why would I want to be so unhappy? Does anyone have a question, observation, anything you would like to share or ask? Well, while they're thinking, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit on the, the regulatory reform question that we um, touched on about how we're regulating for that one-to-one system almost completely in most states. Uh, not Arizona, though. Uh, so, uh, but there, and there's some movement on this going on around the country. But Arizona kind of showed a model, but we've got like this idea that you know, everything is kind of regulated around your business model as a law firm, a nonprofit firm can be like illegal aid, but like, you know, basically a law firm model, uh, one-to-one service is all driven towards, uh, and we are recognizing all these other professionals, other advocates who can be helpful. And we're not really making space for that in the regulatory structure because it really was designed for a different era. And a lot of the conversations uh, around this tend to and with the bar being jumping up and down and saying, we can't do this, you know, and, and uh, we, we're, it's anti-lawyer to do this or, and, and some of these other things. And I'm saying this as somebody who works for the Chicago Bar. <laughs> I, I would not have a job for long if, if, if this really were bad for lawyers. And certainly we wouldn't have any donors because they're all lawyers practically that donate to us uh, if uh, by taking positions like this. It's good for lawyers, too, because, again, you've got one part of the profession that's working real well for folks, and that model, that firm model, works pretty well. If you're a personal injury lawyer or you're in big law, that model is working pretty decently, and uh, they don't necessarily need to have a lot of different business structures. There's all these predictions in London when the, they, that they have more open-ended business models that the big four was going to take over everything. And that hasn't really happened. Uh, the big four is, uh, accounting firms are definitely bigger players now, but the firms are doing just fine. Uh, and, uh, and there is still a very much a role for that. But then, you know, the, if you saw the regulatory reform session yesterday or uh, have seen Bill Henderson's research before, most of our lawyers now are focused on this high end of the market. And you've got about anywhere from you know, we talk, We think about low-income people and the most vulnerable, obviously, the most in legal aid. But uh, the Justice Gap Study Legal Services Corporation just did really highlighted how big a problem it is for the middle class. Uh, it goes well into the middle class of how much people are having trouble getting help. And when you put those two groups together, you're talking 
upwards of 70% of the population, everyday people can't get lawyers, can't get legal help when they need it. And so that should be like a flashpoint for everybody. Uh, but part of the problem is the lawyers trying to do that work and to serve that market have to be these multi-hatted people and try to, uh, you know, that model isn't working so well, that firm model, but our regulations don't easily allow that. And when we want to tap into, um, like in healthcare and other, you know, other professionals to help with a few exceptions, that's not um, happening yet either that, you know, you can have a paralegal working for you who can help you with certain things. But, you know, that, that's sort of the model, again, the traditional model that we regulate under instead of this more collaborative model where you have different levels of service for different needs and lawyers are really focusing on the more complicated or uh, high stakes issues um, that we're, our training really and, and is, is most important for. That's where we really need to get that structure updated. And Arizona has given us a model, I think, of how you can do that where it's, uh, even though this is sometimes referred to as the Wild West, it's not the Wild West. I mean, it, it is regulated. It's a different kind of regulation, but they're not saying you can only do it as a firm. You can apply and you can you meet certain standards and you can uh, offer different types of people can offer different services. You can use different business models. That is what I think we all have to start. I mean, the Royal, we all have to start thinking about around the country and not those of us in the bar roles have to get away from this idea. This is a bad thing for lawyers because, again, you know, I will keep coming back to that Washington Post, but but looking at just the stats of, uh, of where our profession's going and where access is going for the majority of our public, that cannot be sustainable. Can I, I want to jump in on, on that real quick. I mean, I think we, and we have to look at it for serving our communities. I mean, the population that we have currently that does this work is predominantly white in most places predominantly, you know, has access to resources, which is why they could go to law school. And when we look at our communities and we keep talking about the DEI issue, our communities that we're serving, most of them are predominantly, you know, people of color. And so this can be a way to have people that actually understand the lived experiences of our clients to be able to provide services and probably even better than we can do that work. You know, I started my career on the island of Molokai. I was the only attorney there. I had a paralegal who had been there for six years. She stayed, she just retired last year, so she'd been there for almost 30 years. She could do anything that I could do walking through that door. And we just, we haven't ever been able to even replace that attorney on this small island. And I think that's going to be an ongoing challenge, not just for rural communities, but sometimes for some of the urban communities to find the folks that can really provide quality services because they care they're from the communities. They can talk the same language. They understand the challenges, the daily challenges that these folks are, are having without trying to do this, uh, this this concept of teaching people how to be in, in communities that they've never had experiences in. So I think as we still, we talk about the DEI, the DEI conversations that we've continually having in these communities, regulatory reform is what's going to make it better for some of our communities that have no access um, and can have access to people that, again, in my community speaks pidgin English, right? Can, can do the things in the languages that our communities speak when we start talking about this question. Absolutely, and that can't happen absent regulatory reform. Mm -hmm. Mary Chutton, you had a question or a comment? 
No. I, well, I want to put a fine point on that because you you led to a place. So I'm going to restate a little bit what you just said, but I'm going to put a fine point on it first. This is going to happen with or without us. Like the bus is in motion. The train is going. And it's going to be the legal profession's decision whether they're going to jump on or let it go by. Because the structure that now exists is just something we made up a hundred or so years ago. And other people can make up other things that serve them better. And they're doing it. Um, if you look at the Hill research, people around the world solve their problems with legal elements more often than not without ever accessing a formal legal resource or tribune. People solve their problems in ways that work best for them. So the question is, do we want to get on that bus, on that train or not? And Mary's point, which is an excellent one, is this. Arizona has made a change that now allows other people, other entities to step in and fill the void, the huge, ginormous void. And it's not an experiment, so it's safe for others to come in and make that investment. And I think that is a real challenge with the sandbox model, that folks who really are the ideal person or organization or group of people to come in and offer services in a different way simply can't afford and it's, it's extending the same problem that the legal profession already has. Most lawyers, like I was a small town lawyer, you know, serving clients, not a corporate lawyer. <laughs> and I could only help people who could pay me because I had to pay my rent and my mortgage and raise my children. <laughs> and um, so it's not that folks don't want to help people. It's that they can't afford to. And so how do we open it up so people can provide access and and other people can afford to get it. Do you have a question? Um, I'm Nicole Nelson okay. from Alaska Legal <laughs> Services. And <laughs> so one thing I wanted to say and what keeps like striking at my heart, I think when I, I'm sitting through this conference and trying to figure out as a 25-year legal aid attorney and executive director, you know, we have this idea that the practice of law as lawyers is something that, you know, that's so perfect, right, as Nalani has said. But the reality of it is, it's not just failing like on the margins, we're missing the whole boat. We have 92% failure rate. In what other system are we calling that just a gap? It's a full-on crisis. It's a systems failure. So why are we not afraid to try something different? Because what we are doing is failing Look, the entire, we're missing the boat entirely. And, you know, I think that's something that we as legal aid lawyers need to get our our head around too, is a, this idea, I mean, we work really hard. We want to do the best for our clients. And, it, you know, it, it hurts us that we maybe like dedicated our lives to doing this work in a particular way and that it might not be as effective as we would like it to be. But I think we need to like, get around the notions of like our idealized self and look at really what's happening in the reality of it. And so um, I guess that's all I wanted to say. I mean, we have a full on justice crisis. It's not a gap. Yep. And it is 1231. And that I think was an excellent point on which to end. Great point, um, yes. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna say one more thing and it's this. The folks in this room and the folks who come to this conference are the innovation and technology leaders. 
in, and I would say not just in legal aid, but across the legal profession in this country. And if anyone can do it, it's you all. And so that's a challenge and a charge, I think, to think about how, look at it this small, just commit to doing one thing. I think this idea of a network is really important. What can you share that's going to help someone else um, move forward, innovate, help them problem solve? And what kind of help do you need? And how can we get the idea of communities of practice and of networking and sharing both what we're doing that's working well and the help we need um, so that we can move forward with radical collaboration, with humans at the center, and solve this full-on crisis? I agree with you completely. I, I'm embarrassed sometimes to be a lawyer when I look, and I say that with full honesty, um, when I look at how we're failing. And that's not why I came into this profession. I don't think it's why anyone in this room did, so. <laughs> we're making it better, guys. So. <laughs> I just wanted to thank our, our final closing panel here. Thank you, thank you, Kat, Bob, and Nalani. Um, and just say a, a goodbye and thank you, everyone, for joining us this year. Uh, we will. We hope to see you next year in 2024. It's LSC's 50th anniversary, so we will be in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, from uh, it's a little bit later. It's February 1st through the 3rd, so coming in January 31st and uh, through February 3rd. So we hope to see you next year and have safe travels. Uh, back home. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.